Well, it is a good thing to be together. It was the first time, despite the muffled sounds because of our masks, the first time that I've heard people sing in a really long time, other than my family, which is great. But um, it's wonderful. I'm very grateful uh, for this opportunity to gather with you all. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. And as we continue in this series, we are looking uh, towards the cross, right? This has been a slow kind of march uh, up to the cross as we, on this holy week, if you will, as, as it's kind of sl- like Mark has slowed down. Just so, so you know, in, in Hebrew, especially in, in the ancient uh, Hebrew text, oftentimes in a narration, uh, take any of the Old Testament narrations, let's say uh, the golden calf story, oftentimes the author will, this is a Hebrew uh, way of doing things, they will slow down the narration to get to, to highlight the most significant things. And that's what's going on here. Mark is slowing down the text that we would meditate on this moment in the uh, life of Christ and his ministry as he moves towards the cross. And we've seen a few things. Uh, We've seen uh, a few questions, that, that is, a series of confrontations by the Pharisees, confrontation by the Herodians and the Pharisees together, a confrontation now uh, by the Sadducees, which we'll look at today, and then next week we'll look at a confrontation with the scribes. It's building that tension that will lead uh, to the crucifixion. Uh, And each confrontation heightens uh, that tension. Uh, We get closer to the very heart of Mark's gospel, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. So with that, let's turn to the gospel of Mark. Uh, We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 18 uh, to 27. Mark, chapter 12, 18 uh, to 27. Hear God's word. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, But leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word this morning, that we would be reminded of the hope of the resurrection and that joyous good news that Jesus conquered the grave. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There is 
so much, or you could say there are so many, or however you want to put it, religion or religions in our world, so much spirituality. And in our day and in our age, we have before us this smorgasbord of choices, right? You, you can go and you can take what you want and you can leave behind what you don't want. Um, and if it weren't enough to just have a, a smorgasbord, that's a hard word to say. So it wasn't enough to have that many choices at the table, so to speak, of the various religions. We're also invited, in a way, to pick and choose from each religion and kind of create our own religion, right? That's sort of the American way to do it. Um, we can taste the bits and parts that appeal to our appetites. Um, and we have, you know, you can go with a swipe or a Google search or whatever it is in the click of a button, and you can get every single detail you ever wanted on any religion anywhere. It's pretty amazing. And you can click on a group, and you can join any community anywhere, especially today when everything's virtual, and you can be a part of any religion at any time in any community. It can be overwhelming and disheartening if you're trying to navigate. If you, if you are somebody who is seeking God, this can be an overwhelming thing, is it not? To, to kind of say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start to form religion i got to think about this religion thing and to be inundated by just the immensity of choice that you have before you. And maybe you're here this afternoon perusing this table, so to speak. You're seeking God. Maybe you're considering what bits of it, any portion of it, you might use for your own formation of religion. Maybe if you're joining us online, you've been sent a link here to the service and you clicked on it. Or maybe you're here in person uh, this, this, uh, this afternoon and you are, um, you've been maybe even in church your whole entire life and yet you're still wrestling with, do I want that meal or not? Do I want to take it or not? You've never really had it. You've never tasted it. And I want to make a gentle suggestion that the food offered this morning is all or nothing. It doesn't sound gentle. So hear it gently. It's this food that I'm offering, this, this, this religion that we're going to look at, this gospel, this good news, is all or nothing. Maybe you've considered it. Maybe you think of it as something that you might like a little bit of, but I, I want you to hear this. It is either the very worst portion of food that you could ever have, the most bitter-tasting thing, something to be spit out, or it is everything. There was an herb, not bad at herb, well, it was an herb that I once tasted. This is going to sound really bad at the beginning. It's an herb that I once tasted while I was on my honeymoon in Belize. And our guide on our journey through this jungle, it was like we were going on this jungle journey, uh, picked a plant, and he said, put this plant on your tongue. We're in a jungle in Belize. I was a little skeptical. And I looked at him, and I said, well, what is it? <laughs> She's going to put this thing into my mouth. And he said simply, well, it's for medicinal use, and I'll tell you its name 
after you've tasted it. I'm like, all right. Well, I was a chump, right? So I did. Put it to my tongue. It was the most bitter tasting thing that I had ever heard. And as I was spitting it out and trying to get that taste out of my tongue, uh, it just completely overwhelmed my senses, almost numbing my tongue. He said to me, it's called jackass bitter. That, you can go look it up. That's the name, jackass bitter. But then he jested and says, because you'd have to be a jackass to taste it. Well, the Christian faith is either like that or it is the grandest, most satisfying meal, most delectable meal that you will ever eat, which after having eaten it will render all other meals and bits and parts offered to you unpalatable, unsatisfying. You see, it's either or. And the savor of it, the goodness of it, depends on a single tenet of our faith. The resurrection. The resurrection. And this morning, that is what our text focuses on. The resurrection. But as we will see from our text... It's not just what Jesus says in the New Testament. It is what all of Scripture teaches. It's at the very heart of our religion. There is hope beyond the grave. And this hope in life after death stems from one even more basic truth. We have a life-giving God. And to believe And to see and to know that our Redeemer lives and that so shall we. It is the most wonderful thing that we could ever have. Believer, this is our greatest comfort in life and in death. Friend, if you're here looking to taste, this is the only thing that will satisfy. This is it. So with that, I want us to turn to God's word. And we're going to look at this central doctrine, doctrine, this pivotal doctrine. And we'll look at it in three parts. First, we're going to look at the straw man. Second, we're going to look at the power of God. And finally, we're going to look at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Those are the three points that I want to highlight as we consider that this is our greatest comfort, that we have a life-giving God. That is our main idea, but I want us to look at it in these three ways. So first, the straw man. There are many arguments, and we could spend an afternoon kind of going through them, many arguments that are levied against the resurrection, right? Uh, All sorts of arguments levied against the resurrection, and there are great uh, studies out there that can make good defense of the resurrection as well, both from an historical account as well as scientific, you know, kind of thinking about it. But I'm going to leave that aside. I think the resurrection, of course, happened, and we're going to get to that But there are many, many arguments levied against it. Oftentimes, it's it's just the simple shibboleth, right? The shibboleth of the the scientists say, right? That's our culture's shibboleth. Like, the the science says. um, uh, That's, you know, one uh, often used argument against the resurrection. But in truth, it's not the greatest argument against the resurrection, 
the one that turns most people away is, in fact, our personal experience of the finality of death. To stand by a graveside is to know and feel the weight and certainty of death. And for some, it is too much to hope beyond the grave. Yet, this is the same grief that causes others to dare to hope and to ask the question, is there anything more? Is there life after death? This is the question that people have been raising since time in memoriam. R.C. Sproul in his book, Reason to Believe, says this, death is obscene. I love that. This is, starts out this whole chapter. Death is obscene. It runs counter to the vibrant flow of life. When we encounter it, we shrink from it in horror. When death strikes, it always leaves the question, is this the end? Is there absolutely nothing more to hope for? Well, in our text, uh, we encounter a group of religious leaders, Jews, who've answered the question, for themselves anyway, saying that, well, there is nothing more. It's absurd to believe in the resurrection. These are religious leaders. These are people who were at the very top of Jewish society. They were ones who were chief priests, who regulated all sorts of things in Jewish life. They were adherents to the law of Moses, yet they rejected the resurrection. They rejected not only the resurrection, but they also rejected a lot of the the supernatural uh, aspects to God. And they, they were very much about their own freedom to do what they wanted to do. And in fact, this is the way with most people, I think. Most of us who desire to reject Christ, to reject the resurrection, to reject the religion, it's really about pleasing ourselves ultimately. It's about to find some sort of happiness for ourselves. And this was the case with the Sadducees. They lived in the very upper echelons of society. They sidled up to the Roman authorities, and they were opulently rich. There has been uncovered, I guess, home of certain Sadducees. They were some of the, the most opulent houses in all of Israel. Needless to say, Jesus was a threat to them and to their power and position. He was somebody who challenged such thoughts, such selfishness. But here they are, they come to Jesus. They're not concerned about the judgment of God. They're not concerned about obedience to the law. They're concerned about their wealth and their power. And they come to Jesus uh, and, you know, here's again this picture. They, they, they are absolute enemies of the Pharisees, right? They, they, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are enemies, but we see throughout the Gospels that they often coalesce and come together to confront Jesus, make him look like a fool. That's what they're doing here, to mock him. That's what they, they're doing. They, they want to mock him, and they want to mock this idea of the resurrection, and they want to show him up intellectually, I don't know, as a believer, maybe you've experienced something like this in your life. I remember once, some years ago, as a seminarian, 
I was talking with my pastor um, at a Panera. We were just having a personal conversation about all things, and somebody overheard us that we were Christians, and he came up to our table. Um, and generally, that's, that's an encouraging thing. And so he started talking to us, and he just lambasted us for our belief. Like in front of like a whole crowd of people, he just went off on how stupid we were. We didn't, ever, we didn't say anything to him. We just looked at him and were just kind of in shock. And, you know, this happens. And I was very impressed with my pastor who graciously and compassionately defended Christ and shared the gospel with him. He was clearly broken. But here's Jesus being confronted, not just by one individual who was upset, but he was confronted by a whole group of men bent on making him look like a fool. And they did this by showing the absurdity in their minds of the resurrection. They created a a straw man argument using the Old Testament law. That right? That like if you're going to go up to a rabbi, a teacher like Jesus, you got to go with your full knowledge of Scripture. And they go to him, and they they're using the Old Testament law of leveret marriage. This law that states that you can it was a law set up to care for widows particularly, um, and said you know if you know, uh, the husband of a wife dies, the brother can then marry that wife to, to care for that widow, right? That was the purpose of the law. But notice how they draw it out, right? It wasn't just like, oh, there was two brothers. It's like there were seven, seven brothers, and every single one of them died, and then she dies. Like, it was completely absurd. Why did they do that? Well, I think they were trying to use that number seven, that symbol of completeness, and perfection. In essence, they were saying, imagine the most extreme version of leveret marriage that you can come up with, where there's all these husbands and this single wife. What's going on? What happens in the afterlife? Who's married to this woman? Who's the husband of this wife? And Jesus looks at them incredulously, and he said, is this not the reason that you're wrong? I love it. That's how he begins. Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scripture nor the power of God. You see, they thought that they were being erudite. They thought they were being wise, crafty with their logic. They thought they would stump Jesus or make him, in his view of the resurrection, look silly. And Jesus simply says, can't you even see how utterly wrong you are? You claim to be religious. You claim to understand the things of God, and yet you know nothing about God, the very character of God, and the person of God, and the work of God. You know none of it. Sometimes as believers, I think we fear people like this fellow who came up to me. We fear them attacking our faith. We're afraid that we won't have an answer, that they will know something that will cause our faith to crumble. Have you ever been in that situation where you're a little nervous about an encounter with somebody who's challenging your faith and you're, you're worried, do, do, I, do I have the answers to, to give this person? One of the, the, the most glorious things that we have, friends, is that we have the very revelation of God himself in his word. He's given it to us. And we have the power of God by his spirit. And we have the truth that we need not to be afraid, but something that we can stand on. 
Paul in Athens, right? Go, go, go forward uh, in the gospel, past the gospels to the book of Acts. Paul in Athens grounds his defense of the faith not in some philosophy, not in some scientific evidence, not in some worldly wisdom, but this is what it says in the book of Acts. It says, so he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who uh, Philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems, oh, no, no, sorry. Uh, Yeah, they said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. But hear these words, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Paul would go on to argue from Revelation that God created all things, that man sinned, that Christ was resurrected from the dead. Friends, if you're here this morning with all sorts of reasons why you won't believe, I want to challenge you. Do you know Scripture? Have you looked at it and wrestled with its claims? Have you questioned your own assumptions? Have you looked at and, and walked through it? And, and I want to say that if you are so convinced of your ideas, then I want to encourage you. There's nothing to be afraid of of reading Scripture. You will simply be confirmed in your unbelief. But just for a minute, let yourself consider the truth. In God is eternal Life and through the resurrection of Jesus, we have hope in Him. Consider that. Believer, take heart. You have Scripture, you have the very Word of God living and active, and it's in your heart and in your hands. And you have the Spirit of life dwelling in you. There is no one who can take that away from you, ever. Ever. Don't need to be afraid. But I want to take a look at this power of God and the resurrection more closely by examining Jesus' defense uh, against the Sadducees. And we'll come back at the end, at the very end of the passage, to look at the question about marriage after death. That's probably the the one piece in this that's kind of like, huh, and you guys are all stuck on that right now, thinking, what does that mean? What does it mean I'm married to this beautiful wife? What does it mean that I'm not married to her anymore? Glory. Well, I'm going to save that to the very end. Hopefully that isn't too distracting. But I want to get at this main point, the power of God. Jesus' main argument is found in verses 26 and 27. I want to read those again to you. He said this, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. Now, you've got to love Jesus because he never takes you down the path you think he would go down, right? Like, you would think that if he was going to bring up the, 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 the topic of the resurrection, he'd go to some very clear passages in the Old Testament about the resurrection, Daniel 12, 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
Or Isaiah 26, 19, which says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. You could go through the whole book of Psalms and just just look at uh, how David himself assumes eternal life. Or you could go to Elijah. Well, did Elijah die? He's taken up to heaven. What about Enoch? Go all the way back to the very beginning, to Genesis. What about Enoch? He says he walked with God, and that was it. He was no more. Jesus doesn't go to any of these places. He takes us to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Not the most obvious. Why is he doing this? But I think that's a surface thing. I think as we look at this, my hope is that as we consider this text, I think we'll begin to see God. We'll begin to see who he is, what he is about, and we'll come to realize that the resurrection is not just a little nice side benefit of our faith or our religion, but it is at the very essence or the very heart of our religion, the very uh, core of it, for it is the power of God. Of God. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of Old Testament reminders here. You'll remember Moses was with his father-in-law, Jethro. Well, he didn't start out as a father-in-law. He eventually became a father-in-law. Uh, but he was tending uh, his father-in-law's sheep outside of Egypt. Remember, Moses had grown up in Egypt under Pharaoh, and then because he murdered a man, he ran away, and now he's living off in uh, another region. And he is with his father-in-law, Jethro, out uh, with the sheep. And he is caring for them, and all of a sudden, there's a burning bush, right? And this burning bush is not being consumed. And so he goes to check it out, and there he meets with God. Here it was, this flame, this theophany, this picture of God, if you will, in this fire. And as Moses approaches, he says, Moses, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. See, Moses was a man approaching the very presence of God, the one who made all things, the one who judges all things, the one who is pure and righteous and good, in whom no sin can dwell. And here was a man, Moses, like Isaiah. He was a man of unclean lips, and he dwelt among a people of unclean lips. He had committed murder. Take off your feet. You're standing on holy ground. And there is this sense of preserving power of God as he approaches and and God speaks to him. And they're having a dialogue. And what what does God say? Or what does Moses say? Well, what's your name? What is God's response? I am that I am. In, In the Hebrew, of course, uh, the name Lord that you see all throughout uh, the, the Old Testament, it's put in small caps, you know, in, the, in your Bible text, if you, in many Bible texts. Uh, it is the uh, name of God, Yahweh. It is, comes from that root, I am. And what does that say about God? That he is declaring himself as the I am that I am. He is saying that I am the self-existent one. I am the one who gives and takes away life. I am the one who creates and destroys. I am the one who is all in all. There is nothing that exists apart from me. And if we go all the way back to Genesis, you'll remember God created all things out of the very 
<laughs> Out of his mouth, he spoke them into existence. And he created man. Male and female, he created them in his image, and he created them very good, and he created them for life, right? And they enjoyed life in the garden. They enjoyed all the joys of fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. In the midst of that garden was a tree of life because that was, was what God was about, giving life. Of course, man chose death. Man chose to go his own way. Man chose to take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, something that did not belong to him. And death entered the world through Adam. You see, death was the only punishment for sin. It was the thing that was required for disobedience. For rebellion. As Moses stood before that burning bush, you can't help but think he was terrified. He deserved death. Go back to those words by R.C. Sproul. Death. What was it? Death. I'm even forgetting now. Death. Say it loudly. It's obscene. It wasn't the way it was meant to be. It entered the world because of our rebellion and sin. All of mankind came under that curse. But here was Moses meeting with God. And why was God meeting with Moses? What was his purpose in meeting with Moses? To redeem his people that he had promised to love. It's why he says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Because I have made a covenant with them. That I will be gracious to them. That I will give them life. That's who I am. And now these people who are suffering under slavery in Egypt need to be set free from death. They need to be redeemed from death. So here was this covenanting God who brings life by his grace. And what does he do? He tells Moses, well, go into Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And of course, Moses goes and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who are you? And why would I let people go? He says, well, because the Lord, I am, has said, let my people, oh no, never mind him. I'm not letting people go. I'm Pharaoh. And what does God do in that set setting? He brings plagues of death and destruction on Egypt. Over and over again. Till we get to the end, right? The last and final plague. All of Egypt is in turmoil anyway. There's been blood in the river. There's been frogs. There's been dead beasts and pestilence. There's been flies and gnats. There's been all sorts of terrible things. And now you come to the end and God says, and now my angel of death is going to come because I am the God who gives life and takes life. And that angel of death would have destroyed every single person if it were not for the preserving mercy and grace of God. But in God's mercy, that angel came and took the firstborn of Egypt. 
but not the firstborn of the Israelites. Instead, there was a lamb that each family and household was to take and was to slaughter and was to take the blood and paint it over the doorpost and put that as, as a sign saying, Lord, pass over us. Go past us because of the blood of this lamb, right? This was a picture of redemption. Because God had made a promise to bring life, to give life, to redeem the dead from the grave. And so he redeems Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. He preserves their life and he brings them to the promised land. And of course, all of that is a picture. And here is Jesus and he's with these Sadducees, and he's looking at them and said, have you not understand anything in the Old Testament? It was all about God bringing life to those who are dead. It's about the resurrection. We have a problem. We have a problem. Every time the grave is faced... We wonder, is there anything after this? I want to read a little bit. This is, again, from the book I've quoted. I found it very helpful. It's a great book, Little Reason to Believe, uh, in his chapter. And uh, this is R.C. Sproul. And on his little uh, chapter, it says, When you're dead, you're dead. There's no more. That's the title of the chapter. It's a great little title. And then it begins with, Death is Obscene, which we've already looked at. But I want to I go a little further in, in his book, because he says something else. He says this. He uses the illustration, he talks all about different people who wrestled with this concept of death and, and what it entails and is there anything after death. And he quotes from a poet, famous poet by the name of Edgar Allan Poe, who wrote a poem called Eleanor, right? No. Is that the name of it? Yeah, we'll call it The Raven. It's about Lenore, but... Uh, it, it's called The Raven. And I'm not going to quote the whole poem, but it is this picture of this question this man has. He, he goes on and he says, Ah, distinctly I remember it was a bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wish the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcrease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost, Lenore. For the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore. He goes on. He's longing for his love who's died. Says, prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still. There's this bird sitting, this bird, this fiendish bird, uh, this crow, this black uh, uh, raven. Says, prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether temptest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted on this desert land, enchanted on this home by horror haunted. Tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me more, I implore. And what does the raven say? Quoth the raven, nevermore. Goes on, goes on the same way ends this way, and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted. Nevermore. 
the poem completely ends in despair. Our world is in that spot of despair. Maybe you today are there in that spot of despair. You're looking at death and you're saying, is there anything else? And there's that deafening silence that says, nevermore. Friend, Jesus says, life forevermore. This is the power of God. Here, Paul in 1 Corinthians, he posts this hypothetical question. This is one that we've been wrestling with. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ would be raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If we found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did, ra- did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead aren't raised, not even Christ is raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Paul doesn't end it there, does he? He answers that hypothetical with these words of certainty. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. That's the good news. Friends, Jesus rose from the dead. He broke the power of sin and death and has secured for you and for me eternal life. There is hope beyond the grave. No matter how final it seems in the moment, it is but a brief sleep for those who believe in Christ. This is the power of God. It's the good news. Jesus risen from the dead. Now, I want to close. I know I've been going on, but I want to close with this, what seems like an anticlimactic end to the question about marriage in heaven. But I want us to reframe our thinking around marriage for just a minute. And And are we thinking about that day when we're finally brought into that glorious, blessed life, that eternal life? I want us to think about it in terms of that feast I brought forth at the beginning, right? There's the feast of all the religions. What I'm saying is there's really only one feast, and that is the wedding supper of the Lamb. You see, I think it's hard for us to imagine... And intimacy as close as our marriages, especially if you have a good marriage or a long marriage. And it seems unbearable to consider not being united to our spouses in glory. But this is what Scripture teaches. This is what Jesus teaches here. Jesus says there's no giving or taking in marriage, but rather in regards to marriage, he says, just in regards to marriage, okay, he says that we will be like the angels. That doesn't mean we're going to be angels. It just means that with regards to giving and taking in marriage, we will be like the angels. We will not be giving and taking in marriage. Maybe this seems like a step backwards. Like, wait a minute, isn't glory supposed to be the best thing ever? And you're telling me now that I have to give up my wife or my husband? Like, what is that? But I want to remind you of what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Marriage is a gift to us. It is a minor, temporary foretaste of our union and communion with Christ our Savior. 
the one who is our faithful groom, who laid his life down for us and loved us, that we might be with him, united to him perfectly for all eternity. So think about our marriage, how wonderful it is, how amazing my wife is, how how blessed I am to have her. And think about that as just a small, tiny little foretaste of the blessed life that we will have united to Christ as we sit and feast with him in glory. And I, and I want to think that it is, this does not mean that our memories or our relationships in this life are forgotten. I don't think they are. I think we retain who we are. We're going to be us, just perfected. It's hard to imagine. In fact, I think our relationships with one another will be deeper and stronger and greater and fuller. But the joys that are bound up uniquely in our marriage relationships now are just a small, minuscule foretaste to the glorious union that we will experience when we see our Savior face to face. So just take that. As you look at your husband, as you look at your wife, and you just wonder at that union. Multiply it times infinity. And that is the blessed union that we will enjoy when we see our face, Savior face to face. It is not a loss. It will be all gain. It will be life as it was ultimately meant to be. And this is our hope. The resurrection and the marriage feast with the Lamb of God forever. Come, taste, and see the power and love and communion of our faithful God who willingly laid down his life that we might have eternal life. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? We have Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.